Hello, welcome back, and thank you for listening again to the history of the Congo. Episode 5, Meanwhile in the East. Last time we left the northern part of the Kingdom of the Congo in the 19th century as part of one man's fiefdom. But before we look at this with a little more detail, we need to pull back and have a look at some of the other regions in this vast and diverse country. Specifically, we must turn our gaze east, in fact about two and a half thousand kilometres east. We must also travel thousands of years back in time. So join me as we go back, way back, to look at the eastern provinces of DRC. Administratively today, there are six provinces on the eastern border. North to south, these are Hotulele, Ituri, North Kivu, South Kivu, Tanganyika and Haute Katanga. Looking at the neighbouring states, and again travelling from north to south, the eastern DRC borders South Sudan, then Uganda, Rwanda, Burundi and Tanzania in the east, and finally Zambia in the south. These have a very, very different geography and history to the west, and exploring these provides a useful context for today's country and the many disputes that ultimately manifest themselves in violent conflict, even today. In the next few episodes, we will explore this region using the records available. Over time, we shall see how these desperate and distant lands became part of one country. We will see how East meets West, not travelling in from the Atlantic as you would expect from the first few episodes, but from the East. But more on this later, much later. As of now, we'll start from the beginning again, giving these amazing lands and peoples the time they deserve. The topography of the eastern borders doesn't mirror the savannah and forests of the west. These borders are the western edge of the Albertine Rift, one of the southern extensions of the Great Rift Valley, the mountainous spine of Africa. This is where the African tectonic plate meets the Somali plate. The tremendous force and pressures from the compression of these two great masses squeezes mountains up from the land. The pressure is not uniform and between the ranges we find valleys and the great eastern lakes of Central Africa. As a microcosm of DRC as a whole, it is simultaneously one of the most beautiful places on our earth, but with tragedies and hardships endured by its people to scale to match. Lake Albert is the most northern lake on the eastern border. The lake is fringed by westerly mountains peaking in excess of 2,400 metres, with the Kuanzori mountain range extending the border south to Lake Edward. The Kuanzori peak at Mount Stanley, which ascends to an altitude of 5,110 metres, higher than any mountain in Europe, or any mountain in the United States outside of Alaska. Its altitude is such that there are glaciers at the top of this mountain, even though it sits almost astride the equator. South of Lake Edward sits the Virungu mountain range, these don't rival Mount Stanley in altitude, but they have a monumental trick up their sleeve. The Virunga Mountains include the ominous Mount Nyiragongo at just shy of 3,500 metres. Mount Nyiragongo is almost unique in the world as it contains an exposed lava lake where the ominous red glow of lava is often visible, bubbling in its cauldron rimmed by the crater's edge. The volcano is still very much alive. In 2002, Gongo erupted again after only 25 years since its previous pressure release. The lava flows reached 20 kilometres south to the present-day city of Goma. 
Within this city, some of them called and remained, as a reminder to the residents of the power of nature sitting on their doorstep. In most cities in the world, these would have been cleared or maintained as a major tourist attraction. But in Goma, a city of two million people, these cooled lava flows are just another part of life. For the adventurous, you can still visit the volcano in the Virunga National Park as a tourist. Foreshadowing episodes in the dim and distant future, though, the dangers here are not just from the tempestuous geomorphology. Here, there are armed rebels. These recently shot the guide of two British doctors visiting the Virunga National Park to see the magnificent sights. The doctors were kidnapped, but released a few days later, officially without ransom, although anonymously a figure of $30,000 has been mentioned. The guide's name was Rachel Katamura. She was a ranger in the National Park and was 25 years old when she was killed trying to protect the tourists. Those of us who like travelling should remember the bravery of the people who are sometimes there to help us. The city of Goma is located next to the Rwandan border and sits on the northern shore of Lake Kivu, which after another small mountain range, which peaks again in excess of 3,000 metres, flows to the second most voluminous and deepest lake in the world, the 676 kilometre long Lake Tanganyika which has since been designated as the border between the DRC, Burundi and Tanzania. To the south, the mountains stretch and fall to peak at around 1,500 metres, with Lake Amwero as a brief break, running past the Zambian border to Angola in the south. The exception is the oddly shaped peninsula of Haute Katanga, prior to 2015 part of the much greater Katanga province, which protrudes southwest from Lubambishi as a DRC peninsula into Zambia almost splitting Zambia in two. We will see why this is part of the DRC later. These mountain ranges offer a unique topography at the southern equatorial zone, with the DRC Ugandan and the DRC Rwandan borders housing the only mountain gorilla populations left in the wild. These were made famous by the work of Diane Fossey, which was celebrated in the later Hollywood movie Gorillas in the Mist. Rainwater from the westerly faces of these mountains flows west and north to the central plateau of the Congo. The great Lualuba River collects much of this in its tributaries and flows north all the way from Lake Mwero in the south to Kisangani, some 1,595 kilometres to the north. When the first non-African explorers travelled here in the 19th century, many of these thought that this river was the mythical source of the Nile, although as we shall see later, this wasn't quite the case at all. Until only very recently, scientific consensus was that modern humans, or Homo sapiens, evolved in the East Africa Great Rift Valley about 200,000 years ago. As recently as 2001, though, a tooth stored in the Belgian African archives was revisited by scientists and was found to be 2 million years old, and belonging to one of our ancestors. This is not quite as old as other recent finds. Lucy, found at the top of the Rift Valley, was found to be 3.5 million years old. But for simplicity, and for the sake of this podcast, we can assume that people, in the broadest sense of the word, have lived in these fertile lands for a very, very long time. Other evidence is sparse, though. There are no indigenous written records, and the wet equatorial climate stacks the odds against archaeological remains. We can gain a glimmer of how the people living here were connected from the widespread common language of East Africa and today's Eastern Congo, Swahili. This is the Bantu language of Central East Africa. In the DRC, it is spoken east of a line splitting the DRC in two across the middle. 
from the cities of Lubumbashi in the far southeast corner of Katanga, through Kindu, north past Kisangani, as the great river bends to the west again. From this imaginary line, Swahili is spoken all the way east to the Indian Ocean coast. Providing evidence for the cultural influences in this region, the name originates from the Arabic for coast, the plural form of which is Sawahil. Chances are, as you are listening to this in English, you will know some Swahili, Jambo meaning hello, and Hakuna Matana meaning no worries. We've all seen the Lion King, right? Unlike in the West, the people in the Eastern DRC have lived with knowledge of the world beyond Africa for centuries. Middle Eastern records reveal sub-Saharan Africans in the Red Sea as far back as the 4th century, connected with slave trading. Non-African literature reveals that sub-Saharan Africans have a long but unfortunate connection with the Middle East. Sub-Saharan Africans are mentioned in 9th century riots in Iraq, where they were employed in the salt marshes, and in the 14th century they were commonplace as household slaves in Yemen. Honestly, we're not sure when the Arabic traders travelled over Lake Tanganyika to today's DRC, but with the shared language, it's not a massive leap of faith to conject that the people inland knew about the Arabs. If the Congo Atlantic coast provides an example of this relationship, we can conject that conquered people were sold to slave traders, unpleasant as that image is. Of course we are most interested in the people living here, rather than their relationship with others. The most famous historical African empire of this area was the Luba, which emerged in the 14th century near Lake Mwiru, at the head of the Lua Luba River before its flow northwards. This was an area that's been settled since the 5th century. Research by the anthropologist Jan van Sina hypothesises that Luba, in a similar fashion to the Kingdom of the Congo, was initially a collection of unified chiefdoms, all of which were independently run by African princes of a common ancestor. The oral tradition of the Baluba, the plural name for the people of the Luba tribe, states that the kingdom was founded by the Basonge, coming from Maniema to the north, under chief Nkongolo Mwanza. The collective chiefdoms gradually came under the rule of a single king who ruled under a sacred kinship, similar to the notion of divine right for the European kings, known as the Bolopwe. Chief Nkongolo appeared in the country around 1550, building his capital in Mwibele, just east of present-day Kabongo. This was situated about 360 kilometres north-northwest from Lake Mweru and 500 kilometres west of Lake Tanganyika. The larger chiefdoms incorporated in the Luba were the Kaniok, the Bena, the Kalundui, the Kalanga and the Hemba, all Bantu peoples. It has been a struggle to find details of these peoples, but I feel that it's important to mention these names so that they are not forgotten. I want to highlight the complexity of the societies and peoples living here before Arabian and Western incursions, each with their own cultural identity. I suspect that there are oral histories still told, but they are tantalisingly out of reach for this podcast. As the YouTuber Tukongale puts it, many mysteries, my friend, many mysteries. One thing evident is that some of these were skilled wood, tooth and ivory carvers, and there are artefacts still on display in museums throughout the world from this time. Power was not centralised in the Luba King, and they had an oral constitution based on the will of the ancestors, Kishala Kiar Bankambo. This allowed for a religious quorum to provide a check in the king's actions under the Luba religion. At the heart of this religion, read Code of Ethics, is the concept of Bamuntu, which promotes a person of authenticity, good heart and dignity. 
These were the essential characteristics to be shown by the ruling Balopwe. As you would expect, there were internal rivalries within the Luba, and tradition tells of a great hunter, Elungu Umbili, who came from the land east of the river Luabala, and initially helped Chief Nkongolo expand his kingdom to the south. The influence of Elungu Umbili and the people's admiration for him troubled the chief, and after violent conflicts against the man who had helped him build his kingdom, Elungu Umbili returned to his homeland. Whilst in the Luba kingdom, he had married the two half-sisters who had first introduced him to the king, Balunda and Mabella, both of whom gave birth to his sons after he had left. Balunda's son, Elunga Kalala, succeeded his father's legacy and over 20 years led the military conquests which allowed the Luba Empire to conquer territories in the south. He rose in prominence and people's respect increased to such an extent that Chief Ngongolo's jealousy of him was so great that he attempted to assassinate him. The attempt was a failure, and the net result was a loss of esteem for the chief, and the younger man escaped to his father's homeland to find refuge where he founded an army and returned. He was victorious, and Chief Nkongolo was killed, and the second Luba Empire, that was to last for 400 years, was founded, centred on Mwanza. The second son was called Kisulu Mabele, and he too had a significant role to play. He travelled southwest and helped bring the organisational structure of the Luba Empire to allow the Lunda Empire to develop. We have met these in the last podcast, and these are the third of the great African kingdoms in the DRC which grew from the 15th century. The Lunda Empire, although originating from the Luba Empire, they are often referred to as a combined Luba-Lunda Empire, grew to a greater geographical extent than its mother kingdom. It was centred on and around the headwaters of the Kasai River, in the present-day province of Kasai Occidental, north of the town Tishipaka in the central south. Eventually, they enveloped the south of the Luba lands all the way to Lake Mweru. The Luba-Lunda empires were particularly significant as the system of government was based on a central rule, with broadly loyal chiefdoms who were loyal to the centre, similar to feudalism. This combination of a larger association within a federation as well as a degree of autonomy was appealing to chiefs outside of the empire, and the kingdom grew. Even more compelling to the chiefs was the notion of Balopwe, that meant on a chief's death they became a sacred ancestor, who were greatly revered. Incorporation into the Lubalunda Empire meant that other chiefs could gain this status, and they hankered to belong. By 1650, Mwant Yav the leader of the Lunda tribes had initiated contact with Atlantic coast slave traders. These were eager for slaves and forest goods, and by the end of this century trade routes of copper and iron spread from the Atlantic to Lake Mweru and present-day Zambia, a distance of 2,000 kilometres. This was a wealthy empire, and they leave us with elaborate wood-carved figurines and iron axes, as you can see on the web. In the 17th century, the Luba-Lunda states extended further south to increase their combined territories by over a third. This expansion housed the Kazembe-Lunda state stretching from southwest DRC through to Zambia. The kingdoms continued to flourish and by the 18th century they were trading slaves and increasingly ivory to the Portuguese in Angola in the west and the Portuguese in Mozambique in the east. Independent of the later Arab and European incursions, the Luba Empire in the south and southeast of today's DRC was providing a model of government for three empires. There were trade routes with Europeans and Arabs stretching coast to coast across Central Africa. 
This was not known, or at best of little interest, to Europeans interested in region at the time. Cartographers at this time simply left this part of Central Africa as blank, or speculated huge lakes that flowed north to the Nile. No European had explored this, and so little information had been passed to the outside world. This was the dark heart of Africa. Unbeknown to them, there was a model system of government allowing association and a sense of unity across two main empires right in the middle of the continent. This isn't irrelevant history. The legacies of these powerful tribes survived the overlay of foreign rule for 75 years in the 20th century. In 1960, Moisey Shombe, a 40-year-old bookkeeper from a prestigious Lunda family and married to the daughter of a Luba chief, headed up the Konakat political party. This party campaigned for greater rights for all Katangan tribes, particularly the Lunda. As soon as the Belgian colonial lid was lifted, these declared independence, which was one of the triggers of the 20th century Cold War. This story reveals how the Congo's notionally peripheral role in geopolitics allowed it to be the epicentre of global conflict. But more on this later. In about ten episodes, I think, judging how we seem to cover the passage of time in our meeting. For the time being, the point of this is to say that to 19th century European explorers and the Western public at large, this blank space on the map was a challenge that had to be filled. And by filled, I mean thoroughly explored and looked at in the context of trade and civilization, depending on an individual's leanings. At this cliffhanger, we will leave the Congo for now. Next time, we will see how this challenge was manifested as the wider world travelled deeper and deeper into Africa from the East Coast. European explorers joined Arab ivory traders, moving further into Central Africa from the Indian Ocean, and eventually some travelled all the way to the Atlantic coast. It has come to the time to meet some of the people known in history's wider circles, and we can start to see how today's borders of the Democratic Republic of Congos were drawn up. I for one can't wait. So until next time, thanks for listening, and safe travels. <laughs>